0: Our gospel lesson comes to us from Matthew 22. It's the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Matthew. The Pharisees went and plotted to entrap Jesus in what he said. So they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are sincere and teach the way of God in accordance with truth and show deference to no one for you do not regard people with partiality. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why are you putting me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. Then he said to them, Whose head or whose likeness is this? and whose title? They answered, the emperors. Then he said to them, give therefore to the emperor the things that are the emperors, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard this, they were amazed, and they left him and went away. This is the gospel of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Y'all can have a seat. Welcome to church, y'all. It's so good to see you. Um, If we haven't met yet, my name's Ashley. I am the pastor and priest uh, here at Christ the King. Uh, We're thrilled to have you here with us this morning. It's fall break weekend. Um, I think we've been fall breaking pretty hard in northwest Arkansas these last few days, best I can tell. And what a beautiful weekend to get to do it. Um, You know, hogs. Sorry about it. Um, It's rough. (laughs) Um, But otherwise, a beautiful, beautiful weekend. Uh, My family and I were in Jasper and Ponca uh, yesterday. doing what I affectionately refer to as leaf peeping, which apparently is not something that people say here. And so I've said it now twice, and people have raised eyes at me, like I said something inappropriate. And I just want you to know, I think it's a thing. Um, We went around looking at, it's just so beautiful, you know, what a beautiful place, what a beautiful world. It was in the Pacific Northwest in Seattle last week, um, also sort of marveling at what a beautiful world it is, and scrolling through my phone and forced to reckon with what is true of reality, which is that it's both a beautiful world and a broken one uh, all at the same time, you know? So uh, today, I think that it's it's interesting that we get a chance to sit with Matthew 22, and uh, this particular passage in Matthew 22, in which Jesus is um, sitting, you have to remember himself, um, a Jew in the heart of occupied Judea, under Roman occupation, of course. And um, so, you know, one of the things that I want to commit to all of you about our worship here is that um, our worship here will always be a space in which we are, like, bringing our whole selves and the reality of the world around us into it and before a very real God. Yes and amen? Yeah. So um, there's just no getting around the fact that the world is grieving um, right now, and there's no getting around the fact that this particular part of the world ancient Judea, Judea, ancient Israel, ancient Palestine, has been a place in the world that has been disputed and under disputed occupation for millenniums at this point. There have been people who have been spilling blood and whose blood have been spilt in that particular part of the world for a very, very long time. And also important to remember that among those who spill blood, there are always and have always been those making peace, and they have always existed right alongside one another. And as I was reflecting on that fact, um, I was You know, sitting with this passage in front of me and thinking about a very real Jesus, himself, of course, born and raised in ancient Palestine, ancient Israel, being, you know, confronted by these uh, religious political authorities. And it occurred to me, you know, that within the person of Jesus, um, who was culturally, ethnically Jewish, of course, himself, religiously a Jew, he was also someone who would be ultimately not only charged but executed by the Jewish state or Jewish authorities. So himself dying as a person charged with rebelling against the state. Insurrection. And therefore, a resurrected Jesus holds within his very real body, I believe now at the right hand of the Father, both realities. Who better to feel this conflict within his own heart than a Jesus who both died as a Jew and as someone challenging the state and what it means to be an occupied person. Your Lord is a beautiful Lord is what I am saying to you. And I don't have to wonder in times like these when I have so few answers. Y'all, we really don't. And please resist the temptation to believe that you do. I promise you, you don't have answers for what's happening right now. We don't. But I don't have to wonder about where Jesus is in the midst of conflicts like these. And I don't because my Bible tells me so. Jesus is always situated between two criminals, taking bullets himself and praying for peace. He will always be there. We preach Christ crucified. We give praise to a God of resurrection who will one day make well what we cannot on our own efforts make well. And so our hearts are torn just as the heart of our Lord is torn uh, this morning, and I think we have the opportunity to sit with um, what I think is Jesus at his finest and also at his most human um, and dealing with the very real realities of his day, which were both religious and political all at the same time. So I want us to think about Matthew 22. I want us to think about it in light of, you know, the cultural moment that we're in. Also in light of, you know, we've been here at Christ the King going through this series for the last couple of weeks or so about what it means to be shaped by Scripture. Um, And we're talking about that or asking that question because we are, we have said it three streams, church, which means we hope to be shaped by the scripture, led by the spirit and strengthened by the sacraments. So we're trying to learn how to hold all those things together as Christian people also in the way that we worship. So what does it mean to be shaped by the scripture? And this week we're going to focus the question like, why read the Bible? Why the Bible? Or um, why should we read the Bible? And we don't. Why the Bible? Why does it matter? And I think that this We're going to answer that question or at least attempt to respond to it uh, in light of this particular moment in Jesus' life. And uh, then we do the weekly podcast. We'll maybe take a different approach. But today, Matthew uh, 22, uh, for a little bit of context, I think context matters always, but particularly maybe for this passage. Um, In the days of Jesus, in first century um, um, Judea, there were a lot of would-be messiahs. It was a politically, socially, it was a fraught time. Um, the Jewish people, among others, had like, felt their occupation under Roman authority and were always trying to reconcile how could that fact be true and the God of Israel be who he is at the same time. And God, isn't that not the experience of Faith trying to reconcile how is God who he is, and who, how are we who we are, and this be what it is, you know? How do you hold those things together? And that was very much the situation um, in Jesus' day. There were, therefore, a lot of would-be messiahs. A messiah is a political title and a religious one, um, but one adopted by people who were attempting to um, gain power, political power, and to challenge uh, the Roman government. And there were many of them before Jesus came along. But, of course, for the Pharisees, those who were in, um, you know, ruling religious political leaders within um, Judea, they would look at someone like Jesus and see him potentially as one of those like, would-be r- rebels, a would-be Messiah. And so um, they, that was for good and for ill. There were people, many people, who very much wanted and were looking for a Messiah to come who would lead that kind of rebellion. They believed the Messiah would, in fact, challenge um, the emperor, um, put, defeat Israel's enemies. That's what they hoped for, wanted, and waited. And these were zealots. We've always had them. <laughs> always been around. And so those existed in Jesus' day, and they, just like we do now, they looked at a leader like Jesus and attached their hopes and expectations to him and to his message. Yeah, easy to do. There were also those who had, like, sort of made their peace with the situation, they didn't feel the need to challenge the Roman government. And this was a lot often, uh, like Pharisees and Sadducees in particular, those who ruled, not all of them, but some of them. And so the Pharisees here in this moment with Jesus, they want to set a trap for him because they're trying to expose him, trying to see which one, which kind of leader he is. They, don't, they sense that he's challenging their authority. They don't like it. And so they're going to set a trap. And this is, this is the trap. They want to know if Jesus pays the census tax. And the reason that they're going to make him answer this question publicly is because this was a point of contention even among Jews living in the Roman Empire. The census tax was, of course, the tax that the Roman government um, required at the hands of those who were occupied, so you had to pay your taxes to Rome. Uh, on this particular co- coin, the imperial coin used to pay this tax was called the Denarius. And on the denarius there were two on, had two sides, every coin. On one side um, Had the image of Tiberius Caesar, the emperor. Tiberius Caesar, it said in the inscription, Caesar Augustus, Divi Filius, son of God. You flipped the coin over and it said Pontus Maximus, high priest of Rome. So this was inscribed on the coins that Jews had to use to pay for their occupation and oppression. That's tough. That's blasphemy on a number of levels. Anathema to the Jew, for whom they, of course, did not render God's likeness at all. It was literal theological blasphemy. And so there were many who believed you ought not to pay the tax at all. These are the zealots. We're not paying taxes. We're going to revolt. We're going to rebel. And then there are those that are like, you've got to pay the taxes. <sighs> pay the taxes. And so, what the Pharisees want is to make Jesus declare which side he falls on. Are you a leftist or are you a rightist? Which one are you? I'm going to set you up. I'm going to trap you. You a progressive or you a liberal? You conservative? I'm going to out you in front of everybody, and then it will cost you followers. Jesus, intuiting their malice, Matthew says. Uh, malice is always hard to disguise, you know particularly um, for someone as discerning, I think, as Jesus. Jesus looks at them, and the first thing that he says, I think with a great deal of like, I imagine him with both frustration and steady peace. He looks at the Pharisees and says, um, Why don't you hand me a coin? First of all, um, I see you, you hypocrites. (laughs) Um, Give me the coin in your pocket which I really love because it was Jesus's, it's a sort of like, um, it's a dig at acknowledging the fact that, of course, they had these coins in their pockets and he did not have one. So why don't, I don't have one of the coins, but I definitely know that you do. So why don't you give me one? And they do. And then he says, who's in the word, actually in the NRSV, which is my favorite translation, and I don't take issue with it often, but this My humble opinion was a bit of a miss because what they translate as head, whose head and title in the Greek is actually whose likeness, whose inscription. And that's a very intentional word choice for Jesus. He asks these Pharisees, these experts in Torah, who have, by the way, not just like faithful readers of their Bible, have Genesis in particular memorized by heart. Whose likeness is this? Whose inscription? The Emperor's, Caesar's. Ah. And then Jesus says, Well then render unto C- Caesar. What is Caesar's? And give what to God. What is God's? Oh, mic drop. <laughs> it's brilliant. It's brilliant. Here's the reason though that it's brilliant. What I am most impressed by, actually, in this moment, because the sinner in me wants to be like, yeah, Jesus, get him. Just like, you know, this masterful, um, you know, brilliant example of theological showmanship. You know, it's what every debater hopes for, you know, is your moment to like really get the other guy or whatever. You know, and that's be that as it may, let's just put that over here, and that's sin in us. <laughs> and I actually don't think that that's what's happening here. I mean, it is theological showmanship, Jesus at his finest. But the reason that it makes me so proud of him is because it's not just his intelligence, which we should all marvel at more than we do. He doesn't get enough credit, this Jesus Christ of Nazareth, for being the genius that he was and is. He's smart. But what Jesus is actually demonstrating for us in a moment like this is wisdom. And wisdom and intelligence are not as often as they should be probably correlated directly. Just because you are very smart does not make you wise. they are different things, IQ and wisdom. Wisdom, a gift of God. James tells us to pray for it, to ask God for wisdom and says you have not because you ask not and you need to ask because you are the people of God in times like these, in possible situations like these, this moment that Jesus found himself in, it was a trap. There was no way out. He was caught. What does a person do in a moment like that? Your intelligence won't get you anywhere. You need wisdom for times like these why do we read our Bibles? Your Bible is not here to make you smarter, though I think it will. It's not here to make you more intelligent. That's not what it's about. You don't have to have degrees to be a faithful reader of your Bible. We should read with people who have degrees and learn from people who have degrees, but the beautiful news, the gift and gospel of this scripture to me is that if I read it, when I sit with it, when I am shaped by it in the way that Jesus had been his entire life and ask the Holy Spirit for his help, It can and does shape us in the way of wisdom. And y'all, this world needs a lot of that right now. I want really smart people at the helm trying to figure out how to resolve this conflict. But among those very smart people, I pray to God that there are also some wise people who have whatever it is that Jesus demonstrated in a moment like this. It's the only way out of impossible situations. And the good news for me and you is that you have access to this. We do. Together we do. What a gift. Why we read our Bibles. How? How did Jesus get shaped by the scripture. Here's why I know that the scripture at least played a part. Jesus' theological convictions, his understanding of the Bible as he had it, of course, which was different than yours, but in the form that Jesus had it in, how I know that it factored into a moment like this is because the, the word choice that Jesus uses, icon in Greek, Icon in English is the word for likeness that Jesus uses here, very purposefully, because that word icon in English has as its corollary in Hebrew a word selim. Selim means image, likeness, or idol. Most often in your Hebrew Bible, your Old Testament, it gets used to translate it idol. If you were guessing, just a wild stab, at where a word like that might first appear in your Bible, where do you think it shows up first? Don't whisper. These aren't secrets. What is it? Genesis 1. God created humanity, humankind, in his own selim. Ma- male and female, he created them in his own likeness. Translated in English. Here's what's interesting to me about that particular uh, chapter. Is of all the word choices that the writer of Genesis could have used... He chooses this word on purpose because that word in particular is most associated with, of course, paganism. Who makes idols? Who makes selim? Well, pagans do. Pagans make them and devote them to their gods. They make them out of wood and stone to bear the likeness of their gods, and then they set them up on little shelves in their temples. And yet, for some strange reason, the writer of Genesis chooses this word purposefully and intentionally and puts it right there in Genesis 1. A quick story. Um, My first class that I ever took in seminary was Old Testament Survey, and it was co-taught by two women. As an aside, those two women changed my life because it was the first time I'd ever seen women teach the Bible. Um, And they slayed, as they say. It It was masterful to behold. I cried through the last 15 minutes of my first Old Testament lecture, and I didn't know why. I think it was, we were talking about something terribly boring and benign, like law codes or something like that. I can't even tell you, but I was changed. I do remember, though, the lecture that they gave on Genesis 1. Because what I was most impressed with was not them, but the Word of God. Couldn't get out of my seat. This whole story in Genesis 1 is a story about a God who delivers a world out of chaos. And out of this chaos, this chaotic wad, God turns it into all of the literary, which is easier to see in the Hebrew, but the cues are there, to let you know that God is making not just a world, but a temple. This beautiful literary symmetry that over and over, back and forth, so that you can see out of the chaos, God is constructing order, and not just order, but religious order, order out of worship, order out of praise. And this God who delivers the world out of chaos and institutes and constructs a temple creates within that temple, not just blesses it with his own rest and his own presence, but he creates selim, idols. Because what goes in temples? In the pagan world, idols. Those idols, of course, are a reflection of their deity and their God. Except in the pagan world, selim sit on shelves, they are inanimate, they are wood and stone. They bear the glory of their God only within that temple from which they cannot move. And their God is not there. But the God of Israel, he has created you to bear his likeness and be his image, in his own image, and made you not an animate of wood and stone, but made you of flesh and blood, moving things, nephesh, living things, so that you could go into the world which is the temple of your God, the whole of it, not just one little temple on one little hill, but the whole thing belongs to him and to his glory, and you bear his likeness. And everything is his. That theology shaped the heart and mind of Jesus so that when he was trapped by people who intended to make him small and his God small, with all of that truth in his heart, Jesus could look at the coin bearing the name and title of Tiberius and see it for what it was, a lie. Diviophilia. Please. To be shaped by scripture is to take the truth of this beautiful, beautiful Bible, which is the reflection of a far more exceedingly beautiful God, and let that truth wrap itself around you over and over and over again and make you wise and understanding in ways that you don't always know, can't always sense. And it's not because you understand, or because you get it right, or get it all figured out. It's because wisdom literature, which is what your Bible is ultimately, is meant to be, as the sages said, turned over, meditated on, chewed on, over and over and over again. Let it work on you. Let it do its thing. We read so we can be people of hope. Because here's what I know. The people standing around Jesus that day, you know what they were struck by? Not his answer. Nobody cared anymore if he was a progressive or a conservative. Nobody cared anymore about the taxes because something was happening in this person. A wisdom a grace, a peace that we all want to be more like and be more of. You know what I mean? And then it made the other things smaller, less important. It robs the coin of its power. Pay your taxes, good Lord. Give him what he wants. Pay your taxes. If you let this scripture shape you, it will empty the coin of its power, and you'll remember where the real power lies. It was in the God who created you who loves you, guards you, and keeps you. And I pray that will be true of us, who bear his likeness, conformed to his image, amen. Holy Spirit, may it be so, Lord. I pray, God, even now that your word, Lord, where we feel stuck and caught and hopeless, Jesus, we look to you, word of God, a living word, Help us, Lord. Give us not only your wisdom, Lord, but your grace, your mercy. Thank you, Jesus, for going before us, for being more than we are. And thank you, Lord, for the invitation, Jesus, to just become more like you. I pray it would be true of us. We love you, Lord